um, when I was in uh, seminary, I went to seminary, and seminary is just graduate school uh, for people that want to nerd out on the Bible. So I went to the University of Georgia, go dogs. Remember that time we won a national championship? And so that happened, and so it didn't happen when I was there. And so then I went out to Dallas, Texas to study at Dallas Theological Seminary. I was trying to figure out which seminaries to go to, and um, a, a friend of mine, a, a pastor of the, at the church that I was attending at the time was like, hey man, go to, go to one where there's a bunch of leaders that you respect came out of. So I was like, okay, cool, well Dallas is the one. So anyway, so I lived out in Dallas for about three and a half years where I went to seminary, and the Dallas highway system Dallas, great city, by the way. I don't know if been in Dallas, lived in Dallas, ever, whatever, but it's an incredible city, really cool city. And their highway system is incredible because they've got like, they've got their version of 75. It's not the same one, but uh, they've got a, the highway called 75. It's kind of like their main highway. But then they have these like, these, these access roads that go parallel to the highway. But the way that they work is, you know, like if you've ever taken the wrong exit, and then it's like, making a U-turn is difficult because then you gotta exit, you gotta turn left at the light and there's gonna be another light and you gotta turn left at the light again and it's kind of complicated. What's cool about these access roads is whenever you get off of the highway, if you stay on the access road and you get to the end of it, it's like, uh, just like this permanent U-turn to get back on the highway going in the opposite direction. And so they're really easy to use. It makes getting off wrong exits really, really easy. And if you gotta turn things around, whatever. And so because of that though, it, it creates, you've got like this merge lane onto the access and then another merge lane onto the highway. Here's why I give you all this detail. So I'm, I'm driving home from work one night. I taught swimming lessons at Dolphin Swim School. Uh, story for another day. Actually, if you've been around the living room, you've heard me talk about Dolphin Swim School before. Um, and so you learn a lot about yourself and Jesus when you teach little kids how to swim. And so I'm, I'm I'm merging onto the, to the access road, and then eventually I'm gonna get onto the highway, and so I'm merging onto the access road. And you know how when um, you're merging and you look behind you and you're like, okay, someone's coming up close. So you got two options. Either you slow down and let them pass you, and then they merge first, or you speed up to give them space so that they don't have to slam on their brakes. Either way, it's a courtesy, you feel me? Okay, which one do you do? You go fast or you slow down? You speed up. Okay, this is good because that's what I decided to do. I thought, you know what? I don't want this guy to have to slam on his brakes. Let me be kind, okay? I've got four cylinders in this Volkswagen Passat, so I'm gonna punch it. <laughs> so I decide I'm gonna speed up so that my guy in the back can just keep going at normal speed. My goal is for him to not have to touch his brake. So I speed up. Well, he was not very happy with that. He thought I was trying to cut him off. So I speed up, he comes in behind me, he starts honking on his horn, he starts using sign language, if you know what I mean, and he's yelling. And I immediately, I start yelling, which doesn't make any sense, because we can't hear each other, and he can't even see my face. So I'm looking at him through my rearview mirror, I'm yelling, I'm not using sign language yet, I'm kidding, I didn't use sign language at all. But I'm, I'm yelling at him, he's yelling at me, and I'm just like, I can't believe this guy. I did you a favor. So then this access lane, it turns into two lanes right before you get onto the highway because one lane goes to the highway, the other keeps going straight. So it turns into two lanes and he, when it turns into two, comes and zooms right up next to me. I'm like, all right, here we go. He rolls his window down. I roll my window down. He's yelling, he's like, why'd you cut me off? I was like, I didn't cut you off. And we're yelling, he's using profane language, but I'm a good person sometimes, so I didn't. And so he's yelling and then, and then, Suddenly, I see him. He's so angry. I'm so angry. He pulls out what looks like a Chick-fil-A milkshake. <clears throat> and, and I'm thinking, what's he? Is he taking a sip? Does his throat hurt from yelling? Like, what's going on here? Water break. And he, and he takes the milkshake, and he starts moving it in the direction of my car. 
and I'm like, no, I'm, I will go to jail tonight. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> however, <laughs> his window wasn't all the way down. <laughs> and so he goes to launch it at my car, catches the lip of his window, and the whole thing spills inward on the inside of his car. I immediately go from angry to I start dying laughing. He turns so red in anger and speeds off right as the light turns green. And I had one of the greatest moments of my life. And I remember thinking, I can't believe nobody was with me to witness what I just experienced. I couldn't believe it. It was like a movie. It went from I'm going to get arrested to what an absolute idiot. You know what I mean? Like, and, and here's why I was happy. Yes, I was happy because my car didn't get milkshake, but I was happy because whatever your name is, bro, I didn't deserve what you were about to do. And you, my friend, deserved every bit of the mess that you just made. You know what I'm saying? Like, he deserved it. He deserved it. He deserved every bit of it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't do anything wrong. I was trying to be nice. He must have just had a really, really bad day. And then he wasted his milkshake and it's stuck in his lap. You know what I mean? All on him. And I was happy and I was thrilled because he got what he deserved. In my mind, it was fair. Here's a confession, and maybe you can relate. I like things to be fair, sometimes to a detriment. I love fairness. In fact, here's my personal definition of fairness. Fairness is getting what you deserve and not getting what you don't deserve. I like fairness. Like the world is going as it should whenever things are fair. That when you get what you deserve, when you don't get what you don't deserve, I'm all about fairness. And isn't it so true? You are all about fairness as well. Um, I don't like when I'm treated unfairly. I don't like when things don't work out unfairly, when I think things just are uneven, that that just doesn't make sense, that just wasn't fair. And we all like for things to be fair. The only time we don't like for things to be fair is when we need an exception for ourselves. But here's what's true, and here's what we're gonna jump into for just a few minutes tonight, is I like fairness way too much. And we've been in the series, we kicked off last week with the series uh, called It, the, it, 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 this, that. Thank you, I'm like, what's the word? <laughs> it, that, something, Jesus, what? Uh, that hits different. And the series is simply about this, getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is. And what we said last week and what we kind of set up was this, that if you get a clear picture of who Jesus is, it's going to hit different. That if you get the clearest picture, not a distorted view that you grew up with, not a distorted view that you've kind of come to hold on to, not a distorted view that a bad church experience gave you, not a distorted view that a, that a terrible Jesus follower gave you, if I'm just being totally honest, um, not a distorted view that culture gave you. No, when you have a proper view of who Jesus really is, just hits different. Hit your mind different. Hit your heart different. Hit your life different. Hit your faith different in the best possible way. And as we continue the series part two, that hits different, getting a clearer picture of Jesus. Here's what hit different in the first century, and here's what hits different today, is Jesus was uninterested in fairness. Jesus was uninterested in offering you or me or anybody Fairness. And in fact, in the first century, 
In the Gospels, this was a massive deal because in Judaism, um, in, in the Pharisees that we talked about last week, we're going to talk about them again because he's not an interaction with them. Uh, there was the Law of Moses, which was basically 600 commands. It was the way in which the people of Israel related to God. And so what was the goal? To keep the law, to keep these 600 plus commandments. And if you kept the commandments, then you were good. If you kept the law, then you were right with God. If you broke some of the law, then you had to offer sacrifices. In some instances, you were punished. In fact, in some really extreme cases, if you broke the law of God, you were put to death. In some ways, it was a system of fairness. You do what's said that you're supposed to do, then you're good. You don't do what you were told to do, then you are not good. The Pharisees, their goal was to keep the law. It was a system of fairness. It was clean, it was cut, it was black, and it was white. You do this, you're good. You don't do this, or you do this, and you're not good. System of fairness. Fair is what they essentially were trying to make happen, what they were trying to live up to, this law to keep all the commandments. But then Jesus, Jesus burst onto the scenes into the gospels in the first century and he came to introduce something totally new. He came to introduce a totally brand new way to relate to God, a a scandalous way to relate to God, a totally different way that would flip Judaism on its head. That Jesus did not come to offer some kind of system of fairness No, no, Jesus didn't come to offer some kind of religion where we measured how good we were doing based on how we did yesterday. And we set the stage for this last week that Jesus came to offer something better than religion. Jesus came to offer something by way of relationship. Jesus came to redefine how humanity and how the world would live in relationship with God. He came to redefine how we walk with God. And it wasn't going to be based on some kind of law and how good we did. It was going to be based on how good he was for us. And there's a beautiful picture of how Jesus was uninterested in fairness and he offered something better and how the Pharisees tried to prop it up as the means by which they would relate to God. So we're going to look at this interaction that Jesus has in John chapter 8. John chapter eight, if you're gonna turn there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the fourth gospel. So if you get to Luke, go one more. If you get to Acts, just go back one, and you'll be in John. John chapter eight, and, and some of you, if you grew up in church, you probably heard the story. If you have heard the story, can I just challenge you that I believe that maybe God can teach you something or give you a clear picture in a way that maybe you never have seen before from this story. John chapter eight, we're gonna look at this instance where there's a woman caught in adultery. John chapter eight, we're gonna throw up here on the screen. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives and at dawn um, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. So remember, um, everybody loves to spend time with Jesus except the Pharisees, like people that were nothing like Jesus, like always, there was always a crowd of people around Jesus. They wanted to hear what he had to say and what he had to teach, but it was so different. It was so radical. It was so different. So he's sitting there. They're hanging out of the temple courts, sipping on a latte, and they're just listening to Jesus do his thing. He's teaching. He's blowing their minds. And then the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. So she's caught in the act. And then it goes on. They made her stand before the group And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So they rush this woman in. They're standing her in front of Jesus and everybody else watching. Hey, we caught her in the act. It goes on. In the law of Moses, those commandments. In the law, the black and white. In the law, that was a system of fairness. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, they ask, what do you 
say? They were using this question, John tells us, as a trap in order to have basis of accusing him. So again, remember last week, if you were here last week, the Pharisees asked a question that wasn't really a question. They were accusing Jesus. And here they ask another question, and here they're trying to get him. Because if he says to the Pharisees, oh, well, no, no, you don't need to stone her because the law of Moses doesn't matter, then suddenly he's going to get all of the Jewish people upset with him. But then if he says, yeah, yeah, you've got to abide by the law of Moses, then here in that moment, then he's going to say, okay, to stoning this woman to death. So they're trying to catch him on one side or the other. And then Jesus does something crazy. But Jesus, actually kind of funny, bent down. And started to write on the ground with his finger. If I get to like ask God questions when I get to heaven, I'll be like, hey, bro, real quick. Not, not bro, that was disrespectful. Uh, <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, why did he, what did he write in this? Like, was he making hopscotch? Like, what was, what was he doing? You know, like just making a smiley face just to mess with them. I really think he might have been messing with them because they kept on questioning him. And so when they kept on questioning him, he straightens up. And then Jesus, I think in one of the most, I don't know, most prolific mic drop moments in all of the New Testament. This is what he says. He catches them. That's what Jesus does. He says, if any one of you is without sin, go ahead, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Hey, yeah, all you, that's great. You got your stone. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a big rock. Yep, that's a smooth one. Oh, you've got little hands, little pebble. Okay, yeah, all you holding stone. That's great. Whoever is without sin, go ahead. I'll just back away. Take your best shot. And again, <laughs> Jesus, funny. Again, <laughs> stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they're probably like, uh, at this those who heard, watch this, began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. And I think the older ones went first for a couple of reasons. I think one, maybe because they're like, I got a lot of sin. Or, or they were actually a little bit more mature and were like, yep, he got us. And finally, the younger ones, they finally caught on and they just left the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. So we have this moment in the temple, this public moment of humiliation. Hey, what are you gonna do with this woman? And then he just looks at them and says, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And one by one, they leave defeated until it's just Jesus and this woman who's humiliated, who's probably terrified, who's full of shame, who's full of guilt, And Jesus straightens up once more and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? To condemn someone means to denounce them. To condemn someone means to to sentence them, to, to, to essentially to death. To condemn someone is to say, hey, listen, you have no part in this, no part in me. You are out forever. You are condemned. You are done. You are dead. Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And then Jesus responds, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you either. That accusation that they brought, here's what I love about what Jesus did. He didn't even just say, hey, listen, it's fine. Go do whatever you want. The adultery is not a big deal. No, no, he does something crazy, and we're gonna unpack three points here in just a second. He extends grace And he tells her and he challenges her to leave her life of sin. 
So three things, three things, kind of three major points that I want you to pull, that I want to pull out of this passage, three things that I think are worth writing down. And how cool is it? You guys got journals on your way in today. And if you didn't get one, get one on your right. They've got cute little stickers. And here's the first one. You ready? Write this down. Self-made righteousness is a myth, point number one. Self-made righteousness is a myth. What is right, self-righteous, you've ever heard of somebody being self-righteous? It's a belief that you are morally superior to somebody else. Someone who is self-righteous thinks they're better than. Someone who is self-righteous thinks that they are morally, morally superior and better than people that they see week in and week out. The Pharisees were self-righteous, but it was kind of a step further because the Pharisees really thought that they could be made right if they just acted good enough. The Pharisees thought that they could make themselves righteous before God. To be righteous and justified before God is to basically say that you are made right with God, that when God looks at you, there are no problems. When God looks at you, there is no sin, there is nothing that stands in the way. So self-made righteousness is this. It's the idea that you can make yourself good enough for God. That you can do enough good things, you can keep the law enough, you can do enough, you can get your life straight enough so that you and God can be okay. The Pharisees believed that they just kept the law enough. If they just did enough good things, that they would be made right with God. But it went to such a degree that anybody that failed... Anybody that didn't do it as good as they did, it basically put them in a place where they elevated themselves above everybody else to such a degree that they would drag a woman and bring her to Jesus and humiliate her in front of everybody. But what we learn from the Pharisees and what Jesus um, unpacks and uncovers for all of us in that moment is that there is nobody that is righteous on their own. Self-made righteousness is a myth. You and I can never do anything good enough to earn our way to God. You and I can never do anything big enough or good enough to be righteous, to have right standing with God. But isn't it so true? Christians, especially for you Christians in the room, we're so good at thinking and believing that, that, that we can do enough good things to get to God, or, or if we're just being really, really honest, for so many of us that have followed Jesus for quite some time, it's really, really easy to start to believe that we are morally superior to other people we start to believe that we're just better than the person that messed up. We start to believe that we wouldn't have done what they did, that we'll never be as bad as they are. Oh, you'll be disgusted by somebody when you hear something that they did and you think, and I would never be able to fall for something like that. But what Jesus says in John chapter eight is something that Paul echoes in Romans chapter three, and maybe you've heard this verse before, but he makes very, very clear. He says, all have sinned and fallen short. Everybody, all people, all humans, there's no exception, have fallen short, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, of the standard of God, that there is no way you or I could be made righteous before God by doing enough good things. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We're all gonna mess up. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your story is. Every single one of us have fallen short and will continue to fall short. And what the Pharisees missed Watch this, is their need for Jesus. What the Pharisees missed is that they thought they were good on their own. They thought they could make themselves righteous. But you know what they ultimately did is prove that they weren't. See, 
for any of us that believe, and especially if you're a Jesus follower, if you're not a Jesus follower, this is not something that you probably think about, but if you're a Jesus follower, um, if there's ever a part of you that starts to think that you are better than somebody else, if there's ever a party that starts to think you can kind of earn your way to God and do enough good things so that God might bless you and do good enough things to where God kind of puts you on a pedestal above everybody else, you know what we're doing in that moment? We're making the gospel, which is Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave three days later, we're making the gospel unnecessary. Perhaps the most lost person in the room is the Christian that has forgotten their need for Jesus. Perhaps the most lost person in the room is a Jesus follower that thinks the only reason God still loves them is because they do a lot of good things and when they have a bad day, then God doesn't love them as much. Can I just tell you something? I don't believe that any of us can faithfully follow and reflect Jesus if any ounce of us believes we are morally superior than anybody else. I don't believe we can faithfully follow and reflect Jesus to the world if we think we need Jesus any less than anybody else. And the only difference between you and someone else that doesn't believe in Jesus is not how much sin there is, it's just that you believe in Jesus. But you both need him the same. Self-made righteousness is a myth. It's impossible. It cannot happen. But the beauty of the gospel is you don't need to make yourself righteous. You don't need to do anything to get right standing with God. You don't need to do anything to get God to love you. There is no amount of laws to keep. There are no amount of good deeds to do. There is no amount of kindness to extend or love to show in order to get God to see you, to love you, and to accept you. He extends grace to you not because of anything you've done, but because he loves you. And that goes into number two. So self-made righteousness is a myth. The Pharisees got it wrong. But what did Jesus extend to women caught in adultery? He extended a grace. Here's number two. Watch this. Grace is a gift. Simple. This one, this one, this one, this one gets me every single time. Self-made righteousness is a myth, but what does he extend and said? Grace, it's a gift. Have you ever thought about this for a second? Have you ever thought about how funny it is that we get birthday gifts? What did you do? Have you thought about that? I love them. I'm just saying, what did I do? Literally nothing. I didn't even choose to be born. You know what I mean? Like, you did nothing. Involuntary. Absolutely nothing. Yet you got a birthday gift. Why? Because... Grace, grace is a gift. And what is grace? It's the complete opposite of fairness. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. Getting what you do not deserve. Me getting what I do not deserve. In that moment, the Pharisees were like, hey, according to the law of Moses, she deserves to be stoned. And according to the law, she did. But Jesus said, no, nah, I've come to introduce something brand new. I'm going to extend to her grace because what Jesus was going to do was he was on his way to the cross to die for the sins of the world and to fulfill the perfect law so that we wouldn't have to live up to it any more. Grace in that moment is what he extended. She got what she did not deserve. And you and I get what we do not deserve. I remember my brother, he's two years younger than me. His name's Chris. And uh, he, he got uh, engaged 
uh, about two years before I did, married a couple years before I did. And so he was the first one in our family to kind of go ring shopping. And I lived in Dallas at the time when he was going ring shopping, and uh, my parents are Arabic, and so there's this thing called the Arabic network where you've got like an Arabic friend for everything. And so my dad, true story, uh, I don't pay for, I have yet to pay for my car to get worked on ever, um, but got a friend, he's Arabic, he's a mechanic. And so um, uh, we, so my dad is like, hey Chris, I, I've got a friend. Uh, is that, we actually knew him, his name's Naeem. So he's like, hey listen, I, I've, he, he has a friend who is kind of weird, but it's, it's not illegal or anything. He's got a friend who's Russian. His name is Yehya, I think Russian something. And uh, he works in the diamond business, and Naeem's got the hookup, so he can give you a really good deal on a really nice diamond. So Chris is like, cool, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go check this out. So my dad's really good friend, Naeem, who's Arabic, hooked us up, hooked my brother up with Yehya. And so my dad, my brother went and met him at his place in Atlanta. Yehya, that's kind of a weird thing to say. Uh, and so um, they're looking at diamonds, and Chris sees one that he likes. Um... But he's like, not sure if this is the one. So yeah, he's like, look, man, I like Naeem vouches for you. Like you guys are like family, like it's all good. Why don't you just take the diamond, go sleep on it, go think about it for a few days. If you want to keep it great, if you don't, just bring it back and we're all good. So my brother's like, cool. Sidebar, it's a $3,000 diamond, okay? Now you can go way more than that, but that's really expensive if you're right out of college, okay? And so um, some of y'all are like, well, it's more expensive than that. Um, some people just decided they weren't getting married. Uh, and so... Just kidding. Uh, guys, it's worth it if you can get girls to say yes. And so, um, so my brother takes the diamond home just to think about it. And so he's thinking about it, and then he goes and checks out another diamond, and he decides, you know what, I like this diamond more. So I'm going to take it back to, to Yehia. So he, he calls Yehia, and they're going to meet up at a spot kind of somewhere in the middle. And so my brother, the day that they were supposed to meet, is getting ready to go leave, and he's getting his wallet, he's getting his keys, getting all his stuff, and then he goes to get the diamond. He can't find it. So I was in Dallas, I was teaching swimming lessons, I get out of the pool, I get to my locker to get all my stuff, and I, I mean, my phone is getting blown up by my family. I legit thought somebody died, okay? I mean, like, text messages, missed calls, mom, where are you? I'm like, what do you mean, where am I? I'm, I'm here, like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question. So I, I call my mom, I'm like, what is going on? She's like, Chris can't find the diamond. I was like, context, please, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know the diamond? Yeah, well, Chris is gonna take it back and he doesn't want it and, 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 and he can't find it anywhere. Do you have it? I'm like, do I have the diamond? Oh, in Dallas, no. And so, so I'm talking to my dad and dad's like, he can't find it anywhere. He's supposed to meet yeah, yeah, an hour ago. I'm like, bruh, if he's Russian, y'all in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, and so, so they're flipping my parents' house upside down. My brother flips his apartment upside down. For whatever reason, my dad, our old house, used to rent it out. And so my, we still own it. So my brother was like, maybe something, like went and flipped upside down the old, I mean, literally couldn't find it. My dad would tell me that he'd never seen my brother like this, like on the verge of tears. So finally, he's so late to me. Yeah, yeah, Naeem calls my dad. He's like, hey, Suhail, <gasps> a lot of weird names. He's like, um, he's like, what's going on? And so... Chris is trying to figure out what in the world he's gonna do. So my dad talks to Naeem, talks to Yahya, and then my, my, my brother comes in frantic, and then my dad just looks at Chris, and he's like, hey, don't worry about it. Chris like, what are you talking about? And my dad's like, I paid for the diamond. And I'm like, you, huh? You said, what, bro, can I get some? You know, like, can I lose the diamond real quick? Um, and my brother what did he deserve? I don't know, bro. Figure out how to pay $3,000 for the diamond. Figure it out. 
You lost it. This was on you. But my dad wasn't concerned about what he did and did not deserve in that moment. He just wanted to take care of his kid because he saw him stuck in some trouble and he wanted to fix it. Grace is a gift. Can never do anything to earn it. Can never do anything to deserve it. It's something that is given to you in spite of you and in spite of me. Now, you're probably wondering, did they ever find the diamond? Yeah, how do you think I got engaged? I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> that'd be funny though, am I right, Gene? Um, no, not kidding, like two weeks later, this is crazy, my brother has a North Face jacket, had one, and it had a zipper right here. Ah, he put it in there. He had one of the best days of his life when he found it. Um, so my dad got, it's all good. Um, Anyways, I don't know if it makes the story less, but I had to be honest with you, all the diamond was found. But that's not the point. Dad still was ready to pay for it. Why? Because grace is a gift. Can I just tell you something? Jesus always extends grace. And come, this, one, this one's hard for me. Like I have, a, I have moments where I like feel, okay, like, that's just enough. Like, like, Jesus has just had enough with my immaturity. Jesus has had just enough of my mess-ups. Jesus, ha can I just be real? Jesus has had enough with me being impatient with my kids. He's just had enough. Okay, I, I, I was disrespectful to my wife again. I, like, got upset in a fight, and I raised my voice, and I was mean. Like, Jesus, he's done with that. Jesus is done with, with my temper. Jesus was done with the way that I treated that person. Like, Jesus was done that I let that thought of judgment cross into my mind when I saw that person. Like, surely, 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 Samer, like grace has run out. And sometimes it's so hard for me to believe that it hasn't and it never will. And do you know why it's so hard to grasp? Because there's nothing else like it. Because every even human relationship at some point, like there's nothing that can match the forever giving love and grace that Jesus offers. So no matter where you are, what you're walking in with, what your story is, doesn't matter what last week looked like, it doesn't matter what the past looks like, can I just tell you, it doesn't matter what the future looks like, and I don't mean flippantly like you just need to live however you want to live, we're going to talk about that in a second, I just mean that there is a grace that meets you right where you are, as you are, every single time. The response of Jesus is always mercy and grace. The writer of Hebrews says that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence, knowing his response is always mercy and grace. And in this moment, this woman caught in adultery who deserved death according to the law, Jesus said, I've come to do something different. I'm going to extend you grace, a gift, you getting what you do not deserve, and you and I getting what we do not deserve. Grace. So self-made righteousness is a myth. That's good. We don't need to make ourselves right because we get this thing called grace that makes us right with God. Grace is a gift. You didn't earn it. You cannot earn it. You can never deserve it. So where does that lead us to point number three? He asks her to leave her life of sin. And here's the third point, if you want to write it down. Repentance, then, <clears throat> is a response. When Jesus said, I want you to now leave your life of sin, what he was calling her to was to repent. Now, if you grew up in church, 
you know, or if you've been to a football game and you see somebody with a sign and it's like repent or you're going to go to hell, okay, um, you, repent is a very like religious word. Here's what repent means. It just means to turn. It means to turn, to change directions. It means to change your mind about what you are doing. It's mean, okay, I'm going in this way. I'm going to repent. I'm going to change my direction. I'm going to change my thinking. I'm going to change the direction that I am going in the things that I'm doing. I'm going to repent from this, and I'm going to change my direction, and I'm going to go here. Jesus says, I want you to repent from your sin. I want you to turn from your sin. I want you to change your mind about what you were doing and believe that what I have for you and my way for you is better. I want you to repent. And here's what we've got to understand, that repentance, repentance is not just Jesus trying to control us. We talked about this a little bit last week. Repentance is not Jesus just trying to keep us from something. Jesus isn't just trying to like manage our sin. No, no, Jesus wants us to repent. And what is repentance? It's a response. A response to what? Grace. Repentance. It's not a rule of religion. It's better than that. It's a response to grace. Repentance isn't us just like following the rules and obeying the law. No, no, no. If there is a God that wants to forgive me every single time, if there is a God that wants to look at me and allow me to not be defined by my mess ups, that he's not grading me on how I good, how good I did yesterday and how good I do tomorrow, if he's not grading me on like this system where he's weighing the good and the bad and deciding my eternal fate, if his love is not defined by the things that I do but by what he did, my only response is to turn from the sin in my life, to turn from the things that are hurting me in my life. My only response to a God so gracious is to repent, to turn from the sin that he's calling me from and follow in the way that he's leading me. And do you know why God hates sin so much? This is really simple math. You know why God hates sin so much? It's really simple. Sin will kill every good thing in your life. Even if it feels good, even if it's fun for a minute, sin kills things. That's what sin does. Sin will kill your relationships. Sin will kill your influence. Sin will start to deteriorate your conscience. Sin will begin to get in the way of your future. Sin will begin to suffocate your intimacy with God. Sin will make you a bad friend. Sin will make you really, really bad at dating. Sin will make you a bad boyfriend or a bad girlfriend or a bad future husband. Like, like sin will just kill every good thing in your life. And what good heavenly father would want us to do things that are gonna kill things in our lives? It just so turns out that the best thing for you is also the very thing that glorifies God the most, to repent from our sin and believe his ways are higher than our ways. Greater influence, healthier relationships, a more fulfilling life. And come on, you don't, you don't need me to tell you this. You've been on the side where you thought, okay, you got that one thing or you're, you did that one thing and it's like that, that didn't lead to lasting fulfillment. That didn't lead to what I thought it would lead. Sin is just gonna kill good things in your life. And so Jesus, he's not trying to say, hey, I'm trying to control you. No, 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 I'm actually just trying to get you to what's best for you. Repent. Because here's what Jesus also knows. He can offer us grace all day long. But you know what grace doesn't do? Grace doesn't nullify the consequences of our sin, which we've all been there. 
We've all experienced consequences, the natural consequences of our bad decisions. Grace forgives us, but there's still natural consequences for our bad decisions here on earth. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. Jesus doesn't want you to be trapped and entangled in a sin that's not leading to anything good in your life. No, no, he came to set you free. And so he calls you and he calls me to repent, to turn, to change my mind about how I want to live and begin to believe and trust and be curious about the way that Jesus has called me to live. And repentance, again, not a rule of religion. That's bigger than that. It's better than that. It's our only response to grace. If there's a God that's not gonna hold anything above my head, that is a God that is worthy of my trust, that is worthy of my life. Like God doesn't look at you and ever wanna cancel your future, cancel your influence. He wants to forgive you, redeem you, restore you, give you hope and a future. So what hits different and what we need to be reminded of is that self-made righteousness is a myth. Please, come on, Jesus followers, Please don't live out your faith in college trying to earn your way to God. You don't have to. You can't. It's just gonna be frustrating because you're never gonna feel like you're good enough. Here's a secret. You're never going to be. You don't have to be because Jesus came to fix that. So instead of the striving, let's learn to rest in the grace of God. So number two, grace is a gift. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. It's extended to you. It's available to you. Don't let shame say you're done. Don't let shame say that you're too broken to come back. Remember there is a grace that covers all. And then third, repentance. It's a response to grace. So three questions to reflect on and then we're done. And I'd, I'd love for you to consider each of these questions. And the first is this, what if tonight, what if tonight you put down your stones? Like instead of thinking you are superior to somebody else, instead of living your life trying to be better than somebody else, instead of living your life exhausted trying to act like everything is perfect, what if there's a stone that you've been trying to throw at somebody you're carrying because you've been silently judging, silently gossiping about, like you just kind of, there's something in you that thinks you're better than somebody else. Could you just be reminded tonight that you need Jesus too? And this is big for me. I'm just, one of my pitfalls, I'm too judgmental. I fall into the I'm just better than you category way too often. There's some stones I need to drop because I need Jesus probably more than anybody I'm looking at right now. So what if tonight was the night you, you put it down? Question number two, what if tonight you received the gift of grace? What if tonight you received the grist of, maybe it's the first time you received it. Maybe tonight, maybe tonight for the first time ever, you believe that there's a God that loves you and has forgiven you. You didn't do anything to earn it. You can't. That's the beauty of it, which means you can't lose it. What if tonight was the night you received the gift of grace? For the first time, you put your faith in the saving work 
of Jesus. And then question number three, what if tonight you made a decision to repent? Like that sin that you start need, you need to put up some guardrails in your life. Like you need to stop sleeping next to your phone. Maybe there's just an unhealthy relationship that is kind of ruling you at the moment. There's an unhealthy thought that you need to confess to a really safe person to get it out of the dark because what lives in the dark grows stronger, but then when you bring it into the light, it loses its power. We don't have time to do that sermon, but like what if you just made a decision to say, okay, I'm gonna bring this into the light. I'm gonna bring some people into this. I'm gonna ask God to give me strength. I'm gonna get some accountability. I'm gonna put up some guardrails and I'm really actually going to try to repent not that it's gonna be perfect, but I wanna live in the way that Jesus has called me to live. Why? Because he wants to set you free. That picture of Jesus, and I don't know who you are, I don't know if you're the Pharisee, I don't know if you're the woman caught in adultery, but man, if we could just take hold of the heart of Jesus for us, it would change the way we see God, it would change the way we treat others, and it would change the way we would approach him, and even would change the way we worship him and follow him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you that, um, thank you you don't measure us by how good we were yesterday. Thank you that that slate is already wiped clean. Thank you that you offer us grace. Thank you that you don't expect us to make ourselves right. Thank you that you don't need us to make ourselves right. Thank you that you sent Jesus to make things right so that we could live in relationship with you. Heavenly Father, would you just remind us tonight that none of us are above anybody else, Would you remind us tonight that we all need Jesus the same? Would you remind us tonight that there is a hurting world that needs to see Jesus for who he is and that you might use the people in this room to show them the reality of his heart for them. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.